And his use of body language is really fascinating to watch. And I think it's one of the more key elements to what is making this show as successful as it is. We all know the truth. More connects us than separates us. But in times of crisis, the wise build bridges, while the foolish build barriers. You raise walls, I destroy them. Let's see who prevails. Just because something works doesn't mean that it cannot be improved. I say we take off and nuke the entire site from orbit. It's the only way to be sure. Allow my sword to join you in the fight against evil. The world needs us to chase dreams. We have to dedicate ourselves each and every single day to this fight because I can't do it alone. You, the people, have the power. The power to create machines. The power to create happiness. You, the people, have the power to make this life free and beautiful. To make this life a wonderful adventure. Then in the name of democracy, let us all unite. Welcome to Skiffy and Fanti's Screen Scouts. Sukuigar Elite Skiffy and Fanti. You, really, you're gonna you're gonna start with with some Mandoa before me? <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> Seriously? Seriously? I'm Sean. I'm Jen. And I I mean, if you can't figure it out, we're here to talk about uh, a really important show called My Little Pony. Mm-hmm. It's one of the best. Or, or alternatively, The Mandalorian. Uh, which is a really important show that everybody should be watching. And if you don't have a Disney Plus account, Jen will let you borrow hers. So, <laughs> No, no, I won't. <laughs> Only Sean but, gets to do that because he is a sad, sad human being. That is true. Yeah, I am a very sad human being. But I did offer to share boxing with you, so. Gee, thanks. You're welcome. Not my fault. You don't like it. <laughs> I offered to share, so it's not It's not totally non-reciprocal. That, so. That's true. In any case, uh, yeah, we're here to talk about the first three episodes of The Mandalorian, because those are the only ones that are available, and Jed needed to pick me up, and so we decided, oh, well, we'll do this, because as she's going to probably scream in a hot minute, there's a thing she really likes in this show, and she keeps calling it by the wrong name. Yo, Dito! Jesus Christ. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> uh, but first, but first, I must say something very important to everybody, which my Star Wars fans will really appreciate. Because they will know this, and they will be at home or in their cars, just fists up in the air, ready to go. Are you ready, Jen? This is really important. I am ready. Cote! Cote. Yeah. I could go on. <laughs> Please don't. Just, we will link, we will link to the song in the show notes. But Sean is going to stop singing Mandoa for Cote! Darasum Kote. Or he's not. Jor Soran. Kando Atome. Sakiram Nautrashin. Kadvodeyan. Ah, that was the perfect, perfect ending. <laughs> Well, in any case, uh, yeah, so you can keep that in there if you want. It's up to you, Jen. Uh, but we should talk about this show and what it is about. We should talk about the show and what it is about because that's basically um, what I forced you to do. Um, so obviously, <laughs> <laughs> The Mandalorian was just released um, just a few weeks ago. They do an episode a week. But I felt like the first three episodes were a good enough arc 
that we could probably start discussing the show now as opposed to waiting until the entire first season is over with. Um, so The Mandalorian is John Favreau's basically uh, baby in terms of the Disney Plus universe. Uh, he created it and is one of the main writers behind the show. Each episode has a new director, which has been really nice to see. It follows the titular Mandalorian. Yep, whose name we do not yet know. We do not yet know his name, although there is some speculation because... Uh, Pedro Pascal had an interview in which he may have said the name. Right. And Pedro Pascal obviously is playing the titular character. The titular character, which is super exciting. Like, when I first started watching it, I was like, is this actually Pedro Pascal or are they saving so much money by just having him voice the act, <laughs> do the voice acting? Because The Mandalorian, as some people might realize, at least in this show, does not remove his helmet. And there's, in fact, a reason for that uh, that yes. we learn, I think, in Chapter 3, The Sin, which is that... Uh, Part of the culture of his clan, or elite, yes. um, is that they do not expose themselves to other people. And part of that is the background that we learn in the first three episodes, which is that this is taking place five years after the Galactic Empire, but the Mandalorian culture is sort of in tatters as a consequence of something called the Great Purge, in which the Empire essentially stamped down hard on Mandalore and its people. And so they've been sort of forced to effectively exist in a form of exile, uh, hiding in the shadows, as it were. And so they don't expose themselves, and they don't go out more than one at a time, generally. And that's really important, because this is essentially, it's like a diaspora story about an oppressed people. Yes. And I think it's fascinating, because of the history of, of Mandalorians and Mandalore in the Star Wars universe, that we're getting this story about them of all people. It's really fascinating. It is really fascinating. And I'm coming at this with very little knowledge, both of the extended universe uh, and canon, the new canon. And they, there's, I mean, Disney is actually wrapping in some of the the prior stuff. Yep, a um, little bit. In their world building. Um, so it's hard to say, like, what portions of it are going to play a part moving forward. Um, but one of the people that is involved in the writing of the show is Dave Filoni, who has also worked on, I think it's Rebels or Clone Wars, uh, one of the animated series. Yeah, Clone Wars. And he worked on uh, Last Avatar as well. Yes, the, but the in show. terms of the, the, show. the, the story of, of the Mandalorians, some of that came out in Clone Wars in terms of the Disney um, new canon. Well, again, yeah, there's a huge, huge sequence about Mandalore in the Clone Wars, which super fans will have known. And if you've not seen it, I do strongly recommend the Clone Wars. Uh, it's really good. And that's, I, I bring this up because part of the reason that Sean mentions that this Mandalorian's culture does not remove their helmets, although I have a feeling that this line is actually more symbolic than it is um, literal, because clearly they have to eat somehow. Um, but <laughs> they, they use straws, Jen. <laughs> they only use straws. They have an entirely liquid diet, and they never brush <laughs> their teeth. Um, <laughs> but... There are Mandalorians in Clone Wars, and they do remove their helmets. 
So there is a difference clearly between those clans or potentially just what happened prior to the purge, the great purge, and what is happening now. So whether or not that's a specifically a clan decision for this Mandalorian's clan or if it's a larger Mandalorian sort of edict, we don't know, but that's not important at this point. What is important is that we have essentially a masked figure with no name, which leads us to one of the influences on this show. What is that influence? Do you know what that influence is, John? Do you? Are you talking Westerns? Yes. Like the man with no name? The man with no name. Oh, okay. I was like, I felt like you were making some other <laughs> reference and I was like, well, I don't know what you're talking about, Jen, because it's really obvious that this is a space Western. No, clearly <laughs> it's the man with no name. Uh, th- yeah. That's a big part of what the appearance and and possibly even the storyline of the Mandalorian um, as the show exists, and that is a really really cool feature. Um, obviously, there's also a lot of Kurosawa influence because they basically dug back to what originally influenced um, George Lucas in creating um, Star Wars in the first place. But they're taking a very different direction with it in terms of, you know, the scale, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. Would you say that's fair? Yeah, I think that's fair. It's very much an individually focused show. And one of my favorite aspects of it is the fact that this is a masked man with no name. We don't know his name. He is called the Mando frequently throughout the first three episodes through the series. So that's essentially the nickname most people are now calling him. It's just Mando. And I think the really fascinating part about the direction of the show is how much they are able to emote how Pedro, how much Pedro Pascal specifically, because it isn't him and in the suit, although it would have been very cheap for them just to hire a stunt guy to do it. But it is actually Pedro Pascal and his use of body language is really fascinating to watch. And I think it's yeah. one of the more key elements to what is making this show as successful as it is, personally. So I will admit that uh, I have intentionally been avoiding, uh, as much as I can, conversation about this show before it was even released. And so I actually didn't know. I I, I may have known like at some past point. I, I might have retweeted. But I totally, my memory gone that it was Pedro Pascal. So when I was watching this, I kept thinking like, isn't what's her name in this the the MMA person? She and is. Like, <laughs> and I was like, but like the way he's the way this character's walking, I was like, maybe that's her. But like also the body doesn't quite work. I, like I sat here really confused. Like who gotcha. is in this mask? Now I know it's Pedro Pascal. But it was really interesting, I think, to come from that perspective of not having that knowledge really ready in my brain of of experiencing this and not really knowing. The mystery, because that I think part is part of what had made the fact that we never see this person's face really work, because it was more about like we really did actually have to read the body language, and it wasn't just them. There, were, there are other Mandalorians that appear in the show, and it's the same. And while voice can obviously give tone, what's interesting about our main character is that there isn't a lot of emoting in the voice by comparison to other Mandalorians we do get, where the the emoting is way more pronounced. So Yes, and just other characters in the show, period. Yeah, who yeah are like Carl clearly, Weathers. Carl fucking Weathers is Carl in this, Weathers y'all. is at even Taika Waititi as the voice of IG eleven, um, the the droid bounty hunter, which who shows up in the first episodes, we're not 
spoiling anything right yet yeah um so even he as a robot in some ways is emoting more orally than pedro pascal is so it's you're really, really relying on his body movements to judge what is going on. Also, the soundtrack, which is a fantastic, fantastic score. Um, so there's lots of little pieces that are going into this that are creating the story of The Mandalorian without using, like, specifics, I guess. It's a very nuanced show. Is I guess what I'm going for. I think there's some. Uh, I've only watched it once through these first three episodes. I, I think compared to a lot of Star Wars, there's a lot more nuance because I think part of that is that the direction choices are very, very heavily influenced. And this is not like news, but it is referred to as a space western, and it borrows very heavily from the western genre. Yes, not just in terms of the plot and narrative, but visually, even to some degree, the music has some qualities of that, even though there's 100%. a lot of electronic stuff in it. Uh, there, There is that quality. And it's, it's really interesting to watch because I think it affects how we engage with the medium in a way that we don't normally do with Star Wars. Uh, because much of Star Wars, while there is, I don't want to suggest that there's no nuance in Star Wars. There, there is. Uh, it is very much about the the sort of grand myth and you know the big right. uh, good versus evil. And yes, the the series at various points does try to complicate that, but it's still very much about the big big strokes and then putting people who are our focal points in that in that to try to sort of mediate the experience through their emotions and their struggles, uh, but. This story, because we don't have any of the trappings of the traditional trilogies, or even something like Clone Wars, which is super embedded in the trilogy narrative, right. we, we're not sort of, we're, we're sort of watching it in a, in a way that we can't watch something like Force Awakens, for example, or The Last Jedi, or like what we'll see with Rise of Skywalker, or the prequels, or whatever. Or even something like Rogue One, which even though it's separate from the main storyline, is still indebted or heavily connected to yeah. that epic battle between the rebels and the empire. Like that that's what is going on in every other story really that we've been given in some capacity or another. Yeah, and maybe the exception uh, well I mean solo kind of it, it does have some tie-ins in terms of some of the, the information that's released towards the end. And there's obviously the Empire, but maybe to some degree because it's solo before he becomes the solo, we know there's a little bit of that. But even still, right, we're watching that with the awareness of who he becomes. This Mandalorian, it's not Boba Fett, right? Because this is set after uh, Boba Fett's theoretically dead. I, I, I don't know what's happened to Fett in the new universe and the old one he sort of survives and then eventually dies i can't remember how well in, in the new one he's i don't even think he's considered mandalorian oh oh boba fett yeah because he he wouldn't have come from the culture interesting so there's the potential for it that he still is um it's unknown that it, he's not boba fett is that what you're saying there's a potential that he might be boba fett who the mandalorian no 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 yeah. no, no i don't think it's actually been concluded either way if boba fett is is Mandalorian or not. It is possible that he just stole the armor. 
which would actually make some sense given what happens to him um, and what he agrees to do. No, no, no. In Attack of the Clones, Boba Fett is a child. He is presumably his father is or was Mandalorian, but Jango Fett, maybe Jango Fett, stole the armor. That's possible. Is that what you mean? Sorry, that's what I mean. Yes. Boba Fett clearly is not Mandalorian. He was not raised in Mandalorian culture. He was raised by by Jango. Jango Fett, whether or not Jango is actually a Mandalorian or not, I think is actually questionable as well, given the fact that I don't think that the Mandalorian culture really would have been big on him selling basically his DNA and his services for something that large scale. Well, especially during that period because of what we know about Mandalore during the Clone Wars, which is it was having pretty substantial cultural shakeup. Right. uh, Of which the tribe, based on the very light detail we get in these three three, uh, episodes, strongly has suggested that the tribe may have been linked in some way with the more traditionalist side than yes. uh, Sabine, who would have been uh, more of the sort of modern uh, Mandalorian aesthetic. Right. So who knows? It could be either way. What we do know for sure is that this Mandalorian is neither Django nor Boba. Correct. Obviously. Yeah. And is is pretty strongly Mandalorian. Yes. And one of the things that you find out very quickly is a little bit more about the Mandalorian culture for those who don't know it, which was really nice, like I said, for someone like me who like literally came into this not knowing anything about Mandalorians at all. Um and just sort of having a vague notion that they wear helmets. <laughs> you know, like that's well, because Boba Fett was our was our our only our Mandalorian, right? Exactly. So that they are, they wear masks and, and they are bounty hunters. That's that's literally all you come into if you are not like obsessed with everything else and haven't watched any of the other series and so on and so forth. Like I haven't. Then you really come into this not knowing anything. And I think it does a really good job of showing you and introducing you to this culture or at least the culture of this clan and more about Mandalorians in general. Um, and I thought that was really fascinating and very well done. But why don't we get into uh, put sort of a spoiler wall up and start going over the episodes? All right. So spoiler wall it is. It's a trap. No, no, it should just be me going, Kote, Kote. <laughs> You're such a nerd. <laughs> I am a nerd. Well, in any case, that uh, I will say that uh, overall, this, this show is really good. Oh, oh, yeah, before the spoiler wall. Let's just re- 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 rewind slightly. It is really good. That is the spoiler. That's- we haven't really just done our general impressions. I mean, we have done our general impressions, but... No, no, I want to leave it as a spoiler. You want to leave it as a spoiler that you really like the show? Because everybody is terrified of what Sean's going to think of the new Star That's, Wars thing. Because- oh my god, <laughs> this is so true. And this bastard today, you know, I'm like, did you watch it yet? Because I've been super excited about the show. This guy responds with, I have thoughts. God damn it, that gives me nothing. So I've been literally sitting here like, but what does he think of the show? Does he like it? Does he not like it? I had a feeling once he started speaking Mandoa that oh, chances were good. That I was going to do that it. either way, to be honest. I'm, I mean, I'm granted, such a Star Wars nerd. But like the fact that you kind of threw yourself back into that fandom 
that meant to me that you probably liked it. So I, I am I am glad to hear that you liked it. And yes, I suppose that is a spoiler for all of us who consistently go, but will Sean like it? Well, so I say it somewhat jokingly that that I did did it this way as a spoiler, mostly because I have made the very conscious decision that I cannot be a Star Wars fan if my primary mode of engagement with Star Wars is me not liking stuff. That's if true. that's how I'm going to engage from now on, I need to go be a fan of something else. And I believe very firmly that if your only or your primary way of engaging with the thing you supposedly like is talking about how much you dislike it, you should move on with your life as quickly as possible because you're making the fandom toxic and you're not actually doing yourself a service. You're wallowing in negativity yes. in a way that's not not helpful. I mean, I don't mean like we're criticizing things because there's maybe racism or something like that, right? That I think has constructive value because the hope is that by criticizing you lead to something better. If you're just sitting there saying, I fucking hate it because Ray's a Mary Sue and like, I want her legs to get chopped off and man, man, all the women's like it. And I realize only some people are doing that, but a lot more than I would like. If that's your primary engagement, just go do something else. Yeah. Right. Fucking Star Trek is still there, right? It's, you can go be a Star Trek fan. So I, I have made a concerted effort to say that I, I'm allowed to not like things in Star Wars, but yes. if I am going to be a Star Wars fan, I need to come at this from I'm a fan, which means I'm not going to like every Star Wars thing that comes out, right? There may be episodes in this series that I don't think are very good, or there may be aspects I don't like, but if I over, overall, if I look at the grand scheme and I say, Overall, I still really love Star Wars. Then I can continue to be a Star Wars fan. I can continue in- to engage. And well, in this I'm case, glad. The Mandalorian, I think, is really, really, really good and is really interesting. And I think people should watch it. And I will say that uh, since we're going to talk spoilers, uh, there's just a lot. There really isn't a lot to spoil now that I realize it. But No, there isn't. Uh, I spoiled it just characters. by saying Yodito, but Yodito. Since his um, gif is literally all over the internet or was until Disney Plus like sued to they have them all taking it, it down. Yeah. But whatever, aside from that, his picture is everywhere. He is going to be the best selling thing. If they were smart, hopefully they started designing his toy months ago and are now going to release it for Christmas. Um, I'm just saying because I, I want that fuzzy little adorable thing. This show has a lot of potential, I it think, does. for Disney to make money off of so, extra stuff. So much like, money. <laughs> if they just make prints for your wall of just the art that's in the credits for every episode. <gasps> oh my god. They would sell those left and right because they are gorgeous. They're 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 splits of scenes. They're parts of scenes, but they're most stop, of them are stop. Let's let's go in some sort of order. Because I, I okay. definitely agree with you on that. And it was my first reaction to seeing the end credits the first time so let's 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 start at the beginning and maybe go to the end of at least one episode however i will say that the art credits are amazing they're actually the um i'm i'm i, I just totally lied to myself i'm just, i know i just wanted you to shut up really <laughs> i uh, got you cut you on your hypocrisy <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't shut up about it i wanted to squee too well the squee art then. prints are phenomenal they are tech they're the end credits and apparently they were uh some of the initial like it's the concept art and you can tell that actually because the the concept art for episode one was clearly created before the concept art for episode three which is really fascinating 
Um, or at least I think it was based on some of the the scenes that it's depicting and who it's depicting in those scenes. But regardless, they are gorgeous, and I need the book of prints. Like I want it on my wall. I, I want it on my wall too, but I just want to sit there. I want like to have every piece to study. I don't know who did the concept art for this, but they are an incredible talent, and I am so grateful for that art i have I, I mean honestly it's one of the <laughs> most gorgeous things to come out of this series visually this this whole series is is really something it is really something it it is i mean star wars has always had a lot of beauty but that this show it's just i i think it's because of the types of stuff that they they focus on that they try to make it very visually western yes and it it just is really 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 beautiful to look at it is. It is. Um, starting with the very first shot in the show, or one of the earliest shots, which is when the Mandalorian shows up at the first planet he's on. I don't remember what the planet is called. I don't know if they say it, but he's there to, and it's a great, it's, great it's Ar- Arvala Seven. Arvala Seven, thank you, which is an ice planet. And he's shown up to track down one of his bounties. And it's a fantastic scene um, where his bounty, like, we, you're tricked into thinking that his bounty is the, the big bad guy who is, is beating some other guy up. Yeah. <laughs> which was cute. Um, and I really like that. Great action sequence um, when that's happening. That's our first um, hint at what Beskar Steel is. Um, for those of us who don't know what Beskar is, just FYI, Beskar Steel is basically used to be called Mandalorian Iron, and now it's Beskar Steel. Um, it is what they use solely for their armor. Or not solely, but in this, it's become a reward and it's considered sacred. Well, it, it should be specified that the Beskar that we see mostly in this uh show is stuff that was acquired during the great purge yes. and so it is marked with an imperial seal because it was it was smelted by imperial iron workers and so that has very significant cultural value because it's a constant reminder of the legacy and so there's actually like a reclaiming of cultural heritage in a way yes. through the cl- collection of the beskar so and also i got it wrong arvala sevens were uh yoditos found Oh, okay. Sorry. Well, whatever it's called, uh, the Ice Planet is, it's our first introduction to the Mandalorian as a bounty hunter. And it's a really effective scene in terms of his interactions with the people around him, with his bounty, um, which was very clever uh, in terms of, you know, he decides to basically, you know, he says, you want to come in, <laughs> you want to come in cold or warm? <laughs> Uh, because it turns out that he's got one of the, the, the infriginators. What are they called? Oh, uh, 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 oh god. You fails, nerd. I am so, I, like, you keep catching me off guard on stuff <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm slightly ill. <laughs> it's the thing that Han Solo gets frozen in, and we're just blanking on it right now. Which is fine. Where everybody who is, like, an actual Star Wars fan is gonna be like, God, I can't believe I didn't remember that. Carbonite. Carbonite, thank you. That's but carbonite. he has a carbonizer. Is that what they're called? I don't know what it's called. Uh, but he's no, got No, I don't one. think it has a name. I think it just, <laughs> it's just, you're just frozen in carbonite. Yeah, 
but he has like a portable one, which is super awesome. Well, I think the funny part is when he get catches the guy and he brings him, he, he saves him, then he captures him and he brings him in. And then the guy goes to like take a poop or whatever. Right. Fake so he's poop. Trying to, he, yeah, fake poop. Yeah, yeah. Trying to escape. And, and he walks by and it's like they're like being hung up like, like suits. Yes. And so he's like moving them, like looking through them. He's like, oh, <laughs> realizing at, right then that, oh, this is where I'm going. Right. Because it's precisely what happens. He gets shoved in. In a th- in a portable carbonite thing, and then turned into another hanging human suit. So that whole introductory scene is our first, as I said, introduction to the Mandalorian and how he operates as a bounty hunter to an extent. We are then introduced to Carl Weathers' character, Grief Karga, who is the leader of the Bounty Hunter Guild, and he is the one who who is paying him. Um, There is a world-building note here where he tries to pay him in Imperial credits, and he's like, "Uh, I'm not taking that. It's worthless. And he's paid in in a different form, but only half. Now, I had a question in rewatching because I thought that was a really fascinating sort of exchange because the credits still work. The Imperial credits still actually work, and Grief Karga is very clear makes this very clear to the Mandalorian. But we find out over the course of the series how much, and this is, like, we don't know about the Great Purge at the beginning of the show. Right. That's revealed over time. Well, it's in Clone Wars. It is in Clone Wars, but for those of us that are new to Mandalorians in general and this world, um, we don't know what the Great Purge is. And I find it really fascinating that they're using these little touchstones to create the larger world both for people who have watched things like clone wars and rebels and all the other stuff um and those who have not so he rejects the imperial coin and we find out later that's probably because not just because they're worthless um or he thinks they're worthless but because he tries not to take things that are stained by the Empire. I, I will note that uh, Grief Karga is probably being somewhat disingenuous, which is not surprising because he is the sort of head of a bounty hunter guild. And well, right. let's be honest, there's a there's morally a of, questionable. Yeah, yeah, certainly some <laughs> of that. And I, I they are in the the uh, outside of the the center. Uh, they're more on outer rim territory where Imperial credits may, in fact, have always been of lesser value in general because, True. as we've as we've learned, some of the outer room planets in some of the previous material that most people have seen, some of the films, Imperial credits basically are are not worth a lot in the outer rim, and so they may still not be worth very much. And so, him actually trying to give him Imperial credits, he's like, "Oh, they're still good," and it's like, "Well, you're trying to like." get one over on someone who's actually probably really, really intelligent and knows precisely how much they're really How worth. much they're worth. So, uh, but I think it was interesting that it could be read either way, especially well, I think in, a, it's both. in a rewatch. Because, yeah, I agree, agreed. I think it is a bit of both. But It's like an insult on two different levels. Yes, yeah. exactly. And so him taking the other form of credit, I thought was really fascinating. Uh, we are then introduced to Werner Herzog as the client Quote he has no name. Has no name. But he does have storm stormtrooper bodyguards, which strongly suggests that he may be a former imperial officer. A former imperial officer, or potentially 
someone that is working towards building the First Order? Who knows? We don't know, because this is five years after the end of Return of the Jedi. Yes, and it is way before the actual... uh, It's 23 years, I think, before the the next movie. I don't know exactly when the First Order comes about, but... It's much, much later. It's much later, but could this be part of the building phase? Don't know. This could... Well, yes, maybe not... In, in the way that there most certainly are Imperial remnants that may not realize that they're eventually going to become the First Order. Right. Uh, but certainly make attempts to bring some form of Imperial Order back. Uh, right. Which is, is a really cool thing that Disney, I think, has been doing uh, as a way of making some of the sort of old school fans not feel totally like their entire perspective of Star Wars was just discarded like it wasn't worth anything, which is there are Imperial remnants in the Legends universe that are very significant. And so the suggestion that this may still be going on, both is consistent because an empire doesn't just fall and then like nothing's left over. And also some of that history. We do know from uh, interviews and the trailers that um, Giancarlo Esposito is a when nope, he comes nope, into the show oh, later no please don't tell me what this i'm not is. i'm not anyway there are more pieces of the empire still hanging around we know that um so but we don't know specifically what Werner herzog as the client is up to we do know that he is after a very important asset and that's why he is hiring uh the mandalorian um and also that they want the asset alive if possible uh, because a doctor comes in. Well, a doctor comes in and, and in fact, uh, almost gets shot by the Mandalorian because uh, Mandalorian does not like it when people enter uh, <laughs> unexpectedly into meetings with creepy dudes with accents that look like for sure he's eaten someone's heart. Yeah. And also, you know, a bunch of stormtrooper guards, you know. Just yeah, saying. a little creepy. Also, we know the hit, we, we eventually learned some of that history. From from the Mandalorian perspective, which is they they're not very big fans of the Empire at all, so that whole situation's super uncomfortable, super awkward. But, but Werner Herzog, fantastic, yeah, perfect creeper. He's just so good at it. Uh, he really, really was. Um, so he gets the job, and then he goes off to another planet, which is uh the one that sean mentioned earlier a lot happens in this first episode and i think it's probably the busiest episode in that sense um and keep in mind this is it is an episodic series so something new sort of it's an episodic series with an arc um and so each they can't really quite hang out, stand on their own, obviously, because they are building towards something. But there is a reason that I felt like that these first three episodes worked well together and had a sort of beginning and an end. Um, but each episode within has a has its own little arc. And in this one, it's him getting the getting the job and then finishing the job. And he is aided on that by probably my Kuil. favorite <laughs> Kuil, uh voiced by Nick Nolte, which was very fun. Also didn't know until after the fact. And I was like, <laughs> I was oh, like, shit. Oh, yeah. Uh, he's a moisture farmer on the planet that the asset is hanging out on. More, more important, do you know what he is? Do you know what he is? What? He's an Ugnaught. Yeah. What does that matter? The Ugnaughts were the little people uh, that the... They didn't have voice in uh, Empire, but that 
froze Han Solo. They were involved in that. Oh, I did not realize that. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. so he's huh. an Ugnaught, but he's the first Ugnaught where we have had an actual voice. understandable <laughs> language yes. from. And also personality and possibly culture. True. Yeah, he has spoken. He has spoken, exactly. So he this character, Quill, helps um Mando because the asset and the people who are holding the asset are creating a lot of strife in where he lives. And there's a really interesting comment at the very end of the series about that in terms of, you know, the fact that he's just looking for peace. Um, he this was his place to find peace after a life of strife is what you get the impression of. And so he helps uh, Mando with no payment in exchange, really, except for one of the um, what are they called? I keep forgetting the name of them. Jawas? No, <laughs> no, no. The he doesn't get a Jawa at the end of this. Like that's no. He gets one of the 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 thing that is payment is the, the creatures that they ride around on. No, he doesn't get that one. Yeah, he gets one of them. Queel does. There were two of no, them. No, he doesn't. And he agrees. No, cause... Yeah, he does. No, he 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 help he well. Oh, he does get the extra one. Yeah, you're yeah, right. We just never see one. it again. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, yeah. anyway. They, they, they ride on the back of these little two-legged, the names of which has, have escaped me, but totally uh, they're me. very fun and very weird. And so we do get an interesting sequence in which he teaches him how to essentially break in a horse, except it's not a horse. It is a giant mouth two-legged uh, alien creature. <laughs> and But we do, again, there get another piece of Mandalorian lore, which is that he says, your ancestors rode the Mythosaur. I'm pretty sure you can handle this. Big deal. Yeah, the Mythosaur. Uh, yeah, yeah. Big. It's, it, it's a pretty minor step to have to ride one of these things. Yeah. But he almost gets kind of eaten by them, so... <laughs> You know, a little bit intimidated, yeah. yeah. Right. So, but but anyway, so like he he has this nice little sequence where he essentially goes to like a ranch and breaks in a horse. It's a very sort of old school Western type uh, narrative, and then eventually he goes on. Uh, he's shown by Kuil, uh where the the compound is, where the quote unquote asset. Interesting, in terms of like this this whole world building in terms of a western it is called an encampment and not a compound and i think little things like that is what's making this work so well because it is like even the language is sort of divorced from the main star wars epic by little things like that i think it makes sense because of where it is set yeah a lot of so like in classic Star Wars, right? We do have those Western stylized places, so like Tatooine, etc. And while you have things like moisture farms, which are sort of like sci-fi sounding, uh, for the most part, right? A lot of our language is drawn from a different part of the universe, and so we have that epic language, but it's associated with things that aren't the outer rim in the way that these are. These are very embedded in the part of the universe that is most linked up with the sort of Western, um, the the Western components that Lucas certainly was drawing from in his old, in his old days back in you know the seventies. Right, and that's what I was getting to is that little things like that are what are creating that environment and this world, and it's it's really successful just with like very minor details that that one wouldn't even think really are playing that 
big a role overall, but when put together, when pieced all together, they form a very specific impression of the world that we are existing in, despite the fact that we're moving between lots of different planets. And I think that was that was really cool. Um, but yeah, so he leads him to the encampment, as you said, and that's where the asset is being held. Unfortunately, it, of course, is being protected by lots of bad guys. Well, presumably bad guys. We don't actually know. We don't actually know. know. Maybe they're actually good guys and they were holding on to this asset and protecting it. Entirely possible, given what happens in the episodes to follow. Exactly. We don't actually know. It's a very good point. I hadn't thought of that. But it doesn't matter because they are between Mando and his asset. And also, IG-11. IG-11, who shows (laughs) up unceremoniously (laughs) to... Uh, get involved. And this is, of course, one of the moments that we learned that uh, the man- the Mandalorian was not the only person to receive the tracking device that led him to the asset. Uh, there Many other people were, in fact, given the same tracking, which causes some issues. Uh, but yeah, so IG-11, who is, I think, very much fan service because of the love of IG-88, uh, a classic Star Wars character who shows up in Empire Strikes Back very briefly as one of the many bounty hunters that is hired. IG-11 is of the same, essentially the same model type. He is a, a combat droid. And they have a cool old school Western shootout, like in a corral, essentially. They do. There's even a well in the center. It is I know. like... <laughs> it's like straight out of like... Like, uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sun Cascade or something. It's amazing. Like, the buildings are the same, sort of, because it's, like, all, like, stucco buildings, and it's, it is a classic Western scene, and the addition of, like, the cannon was icing on the cake. Because it's it's like an old school cannon. It is! Absolutely is. It just or has one of those, lasers. Like, like when they when they pull that the the thing out in um oh that horrible movie with Will Smith. Oh, that's talking a lot. You mean Wild Wild West? Wild Wild West, exactly. <laughs> when they literally like throw, if I remember correctly, they like throw a a tarp off to the side, and there's like the big rail gun type thing, and they start going at it. It is exactly like. All Very of similar. those scenes that you have ever can even remember from Westerns with the guys going, well, we can't kill this guy with our little guns in a regular shootout. <laughs> Pull out the big guns. Get the big uh, ones going. <laughs> it's a really neat scene. And I think it's interesting. IG-11 shows up. And what's interesting is like he's a robot. and He's like a kill bot, essentially. And yet there's a bit of like this interesting rationalization between, between the two characters. Because the Mandalorian is like... Well, look, dude, like, I'm massively outnumbered, you're massively outnumbered, maybe we should team up on this one and we'll split the bounty. And IG-11 is like, you know, that, that, affirmative, that sounds good, right, but in robot language. And there's, like, this, a little bit of humor as the sequence kind of goes on, because they're way outgunned. There are way too many way of them. Way outgunned, yes. And IG-11 is like, my protocols are like, I don't get caught, dude, and so I'm going <laughs> to kill myself. And he keeps going like, no, 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 <laughs> like, stop, stop <laughs> self-destructing, hold on, we're not done yet, calm down. It's it's pretty great, Um, and especially since it's Taika Waititi doing the voice, know. you know, who somehow <laughs> doing a flat robot voice is still hilarious it's really good it's a very interesting sequence overall it is um and it was 
it was again one of those pieces that really like hammered in this this is a western but it's fascinating too though because we have to remember each episode is directed by a different person so each director this one is dave filoni who again did clone wars he actually also did a couple of limited series uh, other series the star wars resistance um and one other so he is like very steeped in the star wars universe already well which is why he probably was picked and I think his shows specifically were the ones that dealt with Mandalorians. So um, very wise choice overall. Um, but he clearly is, it to me, he's pulling the most from those spaghetti westerns out of the three series. I don't know if you agree, but I, I think we, it's, it's the a most heavy, Western. heavy influence. It's the most Western of the three episodes for sure. Yeah. But yeah, and then uh, they win. And uh, IG-11 gets shot in the head because he was told to kill the asset, interestingly enough. And he doesn't negotiate on the terms of contract. (laughs) Nope, but he really doesn't. Gets killed because it is discovered that the asset, who we're told is supposedly 50 years old, but they have no visuals on it, and so he doesn't know what he's getting into, is actually a child of the same species as Yoda. Which has led to much a cry of joy on the internet in the form of Yodito, because yes, baby Yoda creatures are goddamn cute. They are freaking adorable. Absolutely. And this is done both in CG and puppetry. So, and it's really successful. And do you want to know why a lot of it was puppetry? Apparently Werner Herzog. Yeah, because Werner Herzog found out they were going to CG it all, and he, like, in his very special way, basically told them all, you're a bunch of cowards if you do this. And I guess they must have backed down at least somewhat, because with Werner Herzog's calling you a coward, that's a hell of a thing to get. That's a hell of a thing to get. <laughs> and interestingly, uh, he grew really attached to the Baby Yoda puppet. So. I bet you he did. <laughs> I can imagine. I mean, this is, I so, would have grown really attached to the So Baby this is Yoda the thing puppet. about Werner Herzog, is it, for those of us who are like, Werner Herzog fans in the sense of like his character or even about his films. He is this very unique individual, right? And not just because of some of the movies he's made, some of which are controversial, but even some of his like narrations he's done for nonfiction. Like he has this, this quality that is, is just so unusual. Like they're, they're literally Twitter accounts or like Herzog accounts that are just like trying to like reflect on the world through the mind of Herzog. And Werner Herzog, when he came into this show, had no experience with Star Wars. He he knew it existed, but he had never seen it. He didn't have really any opinion of it. When people told him, like, oh, like, would you like to be in Star Wars? He was like, why would I be in that stupid thing? And then he, when he got there and he saw the stuff they were doing on set and he, he started to learn about the story. And he was, like, super fanboy stoked. And I just want you to imagine Werner Herzog, of all people geeking out about making a star wars story um concerning the fact that like he would sit there and like talk to baby yoda the puppet like it was an actual baby i mean like i i fell in love with Werner hartzog because of this show yeah i mean he doesn't do it in the show it's 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 things he does outside of it because his character is very much coded as 
a bad villain guy. of a sort. Yes, villain of a sort. We don't know what sort, but he is a villain. Anyway, and that's the big reveal. Like, uh, over, there's things that happen over the next two episodes, but needless to say, people were stunned by the asset reveal. They do a very good job of hiding it up until this point. Uh, you know, they say it's 50 years old, and so everybody just automatically assumes, oh, 50 years old is an adult. And so to see Baby Yoda was just like, I mean, it was fan service heaven mm-hmm. <laughs> at that point. Um, obviously, immediately people are like, well, is that actually Baby Yoda? And you're like, no, that's clearly not Baby Yoda because Yoda's dead. We do know when this takes place. Yep. Yoda is gone, is force ghosted. But why is this such an important asset? And we don't know that, and we don't find that out even through the end, except that they're trying to retrieve something from it. Um, there is a reason that the doctor is there. So are they trying to clone this creature? Who knows? Are they doing something else with it? Who knows? I, I got some guesses. <laughs> I'm sure you do. And that's I, it's super fun to watch this show and be like, hmm, what's going on? And I like it is really, really fun just seeing all of the conjecture flying around about various aspects of the Mandalorian, including one in which Pedro Pascal is the voice and might be the body even. We don't know, but um, that it's actually a woman under that helmet. That was one theory, at least for a little while. Um, So there are things like that still floating around. And it's cool that we're getting... That people are getting as invested in The Mandalorian as they always have with Star Wars. Because not only is Star Wars just, it's a fun series, but it is something that you, there is a lot of potential for discussion and 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 musing and, and creating stories about. And I think that, like, this ending really showed that. Just how much fun can be had with this world and how much so much fun right um and how much people are really going to bring of themselves and their own love of this series into into their watching of it um and and their investment in it so it that reveal was just phenomenal it it, this show overall is so far really 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 good and an example of what what I wish we had been doing sooner, which is live action Star Wars television, because yeah. there was so much concern, like, can we do it? Will it work? Because, you know, it's 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 not cheap. It's not cheap to do. And, you know, I mean, there are aspects of this which are kind of cheap, and I don't mean cheap like it's in made poorly. I mean, like, some of the, the, the choices for sets and sequences, like, they don't require a lot of CG to make those work, right? They're, they're very much about uh, scenery decisions, which really just involve flying somebody somewhere compared to like, you know, $11 million for like a CG sequence. Uh, But it's, it shows us the potential that Star Wars has beyond the standard films and the trilogies. And I am really excited because I want to see where this goes. It's already been renewed for a second season. Three, these three episodes aren't the whole of this season. It's just, they've already renewed. Five more episodes to go on this, which is super awesome. I want to see more because the, yeah. the uh, not just of this show, I think there's a potential to tell a lot of very interesting different kinds of stories that we often do not get because so much of the, the classic narratives of the, the nine focus so much on 
the the like Jedi Force stuff, and that is here because the the Yodito has Force abilities that seem to be Latin to a degree. Hey, spoiler for Episode Two. Well, we didn't. This isn't just an Episode One <laughs> thing, and they had a spoiler well earlier. But but the Force is here. But the focus isn't about like Force users like struggling with the Force. It's more about like the the underbelly of the society that exists in this universe of them trying to struggle. And I think... And very specifically in this series, in that vacuum that was left by the destruction of the Empire, the rise of the New Republic, and we still don't have the First Order. So a lot is happening, but this is a rebuilding phase for this galaxy, this universe. Yeah. Like, so a lot of people are abandoned. Um and it's really fascinating to see how that plays out in both Mando as a character and the rest of, you know, the people that are around him and his clan, for instance, which we're going to get to uh, right now when talking about chapter two, shall we? Uh, we're not going to do all three chapters at the level we just did. I thought we were. Jen, it's almost an hour recording. I know. I mean... We were going to talk about all three chapters, though, and we have totally just, like, talked about chapter one and the show as a whole. We haven't even discussed chapter two or chapter three. Okay, well, I will just tell you honestly right now, I, I actually did not anticipate that we were going to be recording for three hours. Well, let's not record it for three hours. Let's briefly recap episode two and episode three, and then we'll go into them real quick. Very briefly. Okay. Well, I'll recap these two. It would be fine. So... All right, so to briefly talk about chapters two, which is called The Child, and chapter three, which is called The Sin. Uh, in chapter two, uh, he comes back uh, from the enclave uh, or the, the encampment and discovers that his ship has been a, you know, torn apart by Jawas, which is a nice reference because Jawas like to take stuff off things. Uh, he, of course, gets really angry because how dare you touch a Mandalorian ship? He vaporizes a few of them, tries to get onto the ship to get his parts back and as ultimately unsuccessful and then requires Kuil to help him effectively get in contact with them and of course his natural reaction is I want to kill these bastards for stealing my stuff uh and eventually he gets them to agree that if he gets this thing called the egg uh he will be able to get his parts back in trade and we learn that the egg is in fact an actual egg an actual egg that potentially, I guess, was is a, it's a hairy egg. I should note, uh, it's got hair. It's very insulated. Uh, <laughs> it, it is in. It, it is the the poop or potentially no, actual it is egg. A, it's an actual egg of the mudhorn. It's clearly an egg. Oh. It really is an egg um, of this giant rhino-looking thing called a mudhorn that literally almost kicks his butt. And the well, only, it does kick his butt. It he does just... kick his butt. He almost <laughs> dies. The only reason he survives is because Yodito apparently has very strong force powers uh, for a child of 50. Who knows? Yes. And again, this is a child and is clearly presented as being infant-like. Uh, maybe not quite infant, maybe like one, two years old, like what, mm. a, what a human child would look like. About a right? year old. Yeah, about a year old, not quite verbal, makes sound, but doesn't necessarily, doesn't use any words, right? Uh, is aware and is interacting with the world, but is not presented as 
as as being the age that it is suspected of being, which they say is 50. So apparently Yoda species live for like 8 billion years, uh, whatever. Uh, but anyway, so he, he does fight it. Eventually, uh, Yodito levitates the, the beast and he's uh, uh, eventually able to to deal with it, and then he kills it, he brings the air, the, the, the egg back, they all cut it open and start eating it, and they're just, like, shoving yolk in their faces, I guess it's, it's sort of like curry, or, or, um, um, uh, It's a delicacy custard. to them, clearly, and it's, like, custard. It's delicious, it's, yeah. It's, like, really delicious custard, there's, yeah, and they're just going, and they're like, your short summary is really terrible. Shut up, that's the basic premise of it, and then eventually he replaces it, and he leaves, uh, he and has he a lovely like, co- yes. moment with Quill, and uh, unfortunately, Quill uh, is going to be on his own, and presumably it may never show up again in the show, which is sad because Quill is great. He says, I have spoken, and then he leaves, and they, they have a nice friendship. Three, the sin is when he actually brings Yodito back and uh, runs into some moral quandaries, because yes. on the one hand, he was promised 20 bars of Besker, which is a lot and could, a lot, a could lot. in fact give him a lot of new armor that is beautiful and fresh. Uh, and he, of course, returns the baby Yoda species. Uh, he asks the question he's not supposed to ask, which is, what are you going to do with it? Uh, he learns eventually that they're doing some kinds of experimentation with it. Uh, and this obviously is something that bothers him throughout the episode. He asks the same question of Greek Karga, who tells him not to ask that question. Right. We also, this is the moment when we learn that Grief Karga basically hired everyone else in the guild and gave them their tracking devices, which of course comes back to bite the Mandalorian in the ass later because at the end of the episode, he decides, you know what? I cannot live with myself. He didn't tell us this, but we can figure it out. Can't live with himself by letting this cute little Yoda creature basically get experimented on. He breaks into the facility, kills a whole bunch of stormtroopers, gets the child, escapes, and then eventually all of the bounty hunters are activated and come after him. And this is when his clan comes to his rescue and shows up. There are some clan sequences here as well. He gets his armor made. He has a brief conflict with another member of his of his clan uh, who uh, is very upset with the fact that he is using imperial smelted uh, marked Besker bars. Uh, and there's some conflict there. Uh, but ultimately, it really kind of comes to nothing because the Mandalorians really come for their own, right? They come to protect their own and they in fact protect him. And I think it's really interesting that this this three episode arc ends with, or it begins with lots of references to foundlings to children yes. among the Mandalorians, yes. right? Because every time he brings some, uh, Beskar in for something for himself, he leaves some for the, the, the children of the future, the foundlings. And he does this again with his 20 be- uh, bars of Beskar. And then, of course, what is he doing? He is protecting an innocent child who has done no harm in these final moments. And then it ends with him escaping with what is possibly the coolest Mandalorian sequence ever of them like with their jetpacks, like, killing all these bastards. And then a great, like, Iron Man nod right there at the end. Oh, and he flies and he get, <laughs> gives a salute. salute. <laughs> that was a little bit like, okay, that that's maybe a bit a All bit too right, far. John. Thank you, John Favreau, for showing that you also love Marvel. We appreciate it. <laughs> we didn't need that. We really didn't need that part. But no, yeah, but it was so, cute. But overall, like this, the the whole three episode sequence. I mean, you can. I think there's a reason why you wanted us to do this because these these really are a, a kind of a perfect mini arc. 
Yes. If you read them all together. Yes. And I think the stuff that I enjoyed the most about this, like the, the combat sequences are really great. It's very well choreographed. Uh, there's a lot of really interesting story elements. But I think for me, the stuff that I found really, really fascinating was the mystery surrounding Yodito and also the stuff we learn about the Mandalorians through those brief sequences. Because... Like the even the idea, like he he's supposed to uh, have an insignia, but he wants that insignia to come from a position of honor. Uh, so uh, he almost gets the the mudhorn as his insignia, but he says, I, "I can't accept it because it wasn't an honorable kill. He had help from an enemy, which was Yodito, which is Yodito. But of course, the the Yodito doesn't know that he was an enemy. But at the time, they in fact were." effectively uh so there's like these really interesting elements of uh i know a lot of people have been like oh it's kind of like a samurai story and and i can kind of see that but there's there's a lot of this like that we know from the history of star wars that mandalorians place enormous value in their armor and that that armor is heavily personalized for them and so to see this character develop and grow partly through their armor really makes those stuff we were talking about earlier about how like we don't see his face but we see body language well but that part of that body language is how he carries himself in his armor at various stages right and even when he gets that newish armor when he bursts into that facility to capture to get yodito safe uh the the physicality changes oh see that's that's something I didn't necessarily notice, but I think, like, specifically, but I think you're right. He's more, like, confident. There's, like, a greater confidence. He is more confident, yeah. for sure. But, and part of that is that he, he finally has Beskar, you know, a uh, chest plate, which is obviously a large reason for, you know, a large space for uh, potential for damage. Yeah. Um, and I I think your whole point about the, the signet is really uh, interesting because that's that is clearly what's going on here in terms of uh, to see sort of how because their spiritual leader the woman um mandalorian says something uh, the blacksmith i should say she says something about has your signet been revealed yet like that's a really because it's not something that they choose for themselves it's something that is revealed sort of in the course of their existence. The reason the Mudhorn became a potential symbol was because, you know, he defeated a, a foe that was essentially unbeatable. And that's why he was like, but I didn't, you know, um, it was not an honorable kill for me. It was for, you know, Yodito, but he was an enemy. So I can't claim that. That is not mine. Um, and the fact that that's respected as okay, then you know we'll still see what your your. It's going to be really cool to find out what his signet is. Are we going to find out in this first year, um, eight episodes in the first season? I don't know. It's going to be. I'm really curious what it is going to end up being because we've had no mention of the signets up until this point, and presumably they each have a signet, but. I don't know that they even really showed that when they were showing the scenes with the Mandalorians, which I think is really interesting. They show one, which is presumably the clan signet, which is above the door to the the, uh, yes, the iron worker. That's true. That, uh, but it's not clear whose that is. Yeah, that might actually be Mandalore himself, um, because they were a different species, the original Mandalorians. 
And that, but that's one of the interesting things about Mandalorians is they exist within this show. And something that is actually true overall, as I've learned later, the Mandalorians are all different species because they are created of the foundlings. So this Mando is human. Uh, we see his parents uh, in flashback sequences um, and they were killed. And presumably that's the point where Mandalorians found him and then raised him. He was a foundling. His parent, his parents were not Mandalorian. Um, there's, they weren't wearing helmets. You know, nobody in the sequences were help wearing helmets either. So he is very specifically an orphan of war. Um, and I think that's an important sort of aspect of who the Mandalorians are and who he is himself. And these flashbacks are revealed when his armor is getting developed or is getting made by the blacksmith, which is a really interesting way to show sort of his trauma and also him sort of moving through that trauma. And as you say, developing as a person through the development of his armor. Yep. And I, and I just want to add, Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I double checked, but the, uh, the horned sculpture that's above the door is a mythosaur. Oh, it is a mythosaur. Okay. And those are very important s- symbols for. So it may in fact be an insignia, but it may suggest not of an individual. It might be the group and it may be a representation of their history. It could be, or it could be the clan. The clan could be the mythosaur clan. We don't, you know. Yeah. Well, they're called the tribe, uh, but they, that may be part of the history because, right, we've been told things like, well, your ancestors used to ride the mythosaur. And, like, it's also possible maybe part of the ancestry of this particular group is, in fact, the killing of a mythosaur or yeah. something. We don't know, though, right? Because it's shown to us very explicitly that this this symbol is important, but it's not told to us yet. And I think that's a great bit of storytelling of leaving those little bits of mystery, which this show does very well while still giving you enough to chew on so you're not feeling totally lost. Right. Which is important. It is. Um, I, I would like to note that in Chapter 3, is it Chapter 3? No, Chapter 2, we get a lot more of the, um, uh, which was directed by a Nigerian-American director, Rick Famuyia, uh, who did a fantastic job of continuing uh, the western influence very specifically the man with no name in a lot of the sequences of that are going of him walking and they're gorgeous gorgeous sequences may i just add oh this whole this whole show is gorgeous oh yeah but i just had to point out those walking sequences because you get you know the the sunset going behind him like a lot of those the second episode is where sort of the Mandalorian emblem is coming from. It's coming straight out of that episode too. Whether they had designed the the title before they made the episode, don't know. I don't know. Uh, but it's specifically that image of the Mandalorian and his that is straight out of the man with no name with his cloak off to the side and um yeah. Just it's really cool. Oh it's great. Yeah, I had, I had to point that out. Um, a couple of things, other things happen here too, which is as we find out more about the helmet in terms of this is where we learn that it's never taken off. However, right. as I said earlier, I believe that's more of a t- symbolic statement as opposed to reality because the reality is that 
you'd have to take your helmet off occasionally. Well, they they don't take it. I think the implication is they do not take it off in front of other people. You do not expose your face. Yeah, I think it's more because they don't take it off in front of each other either. Right. But I think that that is culturally right. The armor is your identity. But we're also told that they the the tribe specifically do not go out more than one at a time. Only right. one of them is meant to be seen in public, with the exception of episode three when they all are around. And I think that part of that is we don't they're underground and so that's a secret group. They they're trying to protect their identity, but also build the myth because that's that's the thing that happens in all the episodes is everyone keeps talking about Mandalorians and like the stories about Mandalorians. Right. And they believe that he is like the only one, even though there's apparently a bunch of them hanging out, you know, underground. Um, and I think that's actually because clearly they are protecting them. They're, they are in hiding. We don't know from what. Obviously, the purge occurred. Are they still hiding from sort of remnants of the Empire? Are they hiding just for the myth are they hiding to protect themselves are they hiding to protect the children there is the comment after they reveal themselves he says something about how you're how you're going to have to move and i can't remember how he refers to the 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 enclave of um the mandalorians but he says you're going to have to move it and they said that's okay it is the way but i think more importantly yes obviously they don't take it off in front of other people but i think it's more of a considering the situation that they're in i think it's more of a have you ever surrendered and has anyone ever beaten you and i think that's more what that statement of have you ever taken your helmet off has it ever been taken off for you really means in terms of the cultural context maybe yeah because this is a clan of warriors right so I think it's a little bit of both, and I'm going to be really interested to see how that plays out and how much more of sort of the mythology and the culture that we get of this diasporic culture, the refugees, they are refugees. Um, and I'm I'm really interested to see how that develops over the course of both the rest of the season and the series in general. It'll be interesting to see where this goes, that's for sure. And we'll have to do a revisit because there's much left to see. Well, this is Screens Out, so we don't have to do just one episode. We will come back maybe after the end of the season. So we've got five more episodes left to go this this season. And I think uh, it would be a nice time to come revisit. I think we're going to need to do a retrospective because Star Wars is, as of 2020, will be very different. Because a lot will Ooh, have ended. So much. And uh, I would like to point out, Deborah Chow was the director of The Sin, which was the final uh, the episode three. And she also directed uh, upcoming episode seven. Um, she is the director and um, main producer, creator of the Obi-Wan TV show. So... Oh, the one that we're getting. The one that we are getting. Yes. Got it. So she is the main director of that series. So that's going to be, she does a fantastic job with the sin. Um, it was a beautifully yeah. done episode. Although I like, I really like. I'm like, I don't. Which one's my favorite episode? I don't know which one's my favorite episode. They're all so good. I I just don't. You don't need to pick. No, but I really did love the child. I think that was yeah wonderful. The second episode, they're all good, and I uh, I are. will say for folks that uh, may be curious, uh, Bryce Dallas Howard is directing the next episode, number four. 
which is TBA. We don't know what it's going to be called. And obviously Dave Filoni and Rick Fama, uh, Rick Fama Yua and Deborah Chow will, will direct uh, a different set of episodes. And then the last one is Taika Waititi yeah. who is directing, which I am really curious about because Star Wars is not Thor. <laughs> <laughs> and and Taika Waititi has a very interesting directing style. Yes, uh, in a lot of the productions yes. that he's done, that has a very strong comedic element to it, with with drama. Like uh, you know, Thor Thor three has a great deal of really important dramatic tension, etc. But it is in a lot of ways very vibrant and very comedic in it in a Taika Waititi way. And it'll be so interesting to see if they're going to let him have some of that quality in a star wars story and if so what did that look like right but i don't think that these three episodes these first three episodes are bereft of humor um either so no not at all i didn't want to give that impression i just taika waititi's style is very 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 different exactly (laughs) but like i mean clearly we get the the humor with ig11 but not just not just ig11 you get um, some fun, funny um, moments with Queel. I mean, just the fact that he says, you know, um, I have spoken. And it's I, hilarious I the first spoken. time that he delivers that line. Like, I have spoken. Absolutely hilarious. Even shooting IG-11 is oddly comedic. Um, yeah. Yeah, he's a, it's a, a janky character. Yes. Um, in episode two, you have this great siege of the Sandcrawler, uh, where the Mandalorian is desperately trying to get his stuff back from the Jawas. So he like tries to climb on their, their, you know, land crawler thingy, the Sandcrawler. Yep. It's a great sequence because you're, you're like, yeah, he's going to do it because he's the Mandalorian. And then he gets to the top and he is just shut down and i laughed my butt off when that happened i was like okay he deserved that (laughs) well but in any case uh there's just a lot to come and i think people uh you really should check out this show because it's it is quite good and well worth having disney plus for so do it just you should watch it it's great you should and um i think sean and i are gonna have a lot of fun with sort of post-colonial um (laughs) <laughs> like interpretations of the Mandalorian. I, I think so. I, I hope that they dig into some of that a bit more. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be really interesting to see what, what happens moving forward. But I, I have to say, uh, I agree. It is an excellent start to the extended Star Wars universe in terms of live action beyond the Skywalker saga. Yeah, absolutely. So does that mean we're we're closing out, Jen? I think we are because clearly you have to get out of here and uh, we've been talking way too long and I don't, I'm not actually looking forward to editing this. No, so, well, you know. this is your fault, not mine. <laughs> uh, so I wanted to squee. <laughs> thank you. I just have to say oh uh, thank you for letting me squee about this show. I appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, you owe me $10. So, okay. Yeah. Uh, okay. In any case, folks, if you have any opinions about the show, you want to let us know, you can reach us a couple places. We can, uh, we're on the Twitters at Skiffy and Fanti. We have a Facebook, facebook.com slash Skiffy and Fanti. You can also email us, Skiffy and Fanti at gmail.com. We also have a newsletter, skiffyandfanti.com slash newsletter. We've got a booktube thing, youtube.com slash Skiffy and Fanti. And we have a website that you can also go on. And there's like a comment function. You could use that too. Uh, that is obviously skiffyandfanti.com. 
And we are on Patreon. So please support us on the Patreon so that we can both quit our jobs and never have to do anything that is actual work ever again. (laughs) (laughs) Patreon.com slash Skiffy and Fanty. And last note, if you could please leave a review for us, if you like what we do, we would really appreciate that. Uh, One of the best places to do that is at Apple iTunes to help other people find us and listen to us being amazing. Yep. And if you are a Spotify user, we're on there too. And it, theoretically if you're listening to us on there it it can help us so i say theoretically because i have no idea how their algorithm no works idea. so for all i know if you listen we might actually become invisible <gasps> Ooh, yeah that actually sounds interesting which might be a useful skill so go for it right yeah so any support you can have is great um thanks everyone for listening i appreciate it uh as always uh kote bodeon kote and uh on that note jen awkward ending and scene awkward ending and scene I have spoken. If you would like to support this show, you can go to patreon.com slash skiffyandfanty or find us on Twitter at skiffyandfanty, our webpage skiffyandfanty.com, or you can even send us an email at skiffyandfanty at gmail.com. The intro music for this podcast was taken from Rock Thing by Creo. You can find out more about their music on freemusicarchive.org.